Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for a time to fellowship with you in the unity of the faith. Thank you for giving us faith and a life of sanctification, resulting in peace and contentment. Thank you, Father, for always reminding us of the gospel reality and that nothing else matters if we don't keep it close to our hearts, willing to defend it with all of our hearts, our souls, our minds, and our strength. Thank you for equipping us as saints, as soldiers for Christ. For although the fight is arduous, you ensure that we have what it takes to bring glory to you by grace through faith. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. And may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, the gospel, salvation, and sanctification... Part 4, now is the time to focus, folks. Philippians 3.13 says, Forgetting what lies behind, Matthew 6.34, Do not be anxious about tomorrow. That cleaves out yesterday and tomorrow, leaving us doing this thing that truly does matter most. So let's take advantage, once again, of the grace that He so abundantly supplied to us here this morning. Turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy 4.1. Why all of this, as I've been sort of loosely calling in my own soul, the gospel reloaded? Why? And why is this a healthy exercise um, for every church, for every assembly, for every believer to endeavor upon it, to venture forth towards well this is the reason second timothy 4:1 i solemnly charge you in the presence of god and of christ jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom preach the word be ready in season and out of season reprove rebuke exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. That was Paul writing to a young preacher, Timothy. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Jude wrote a similar thing in the midst of his own defense of the faith. Go to Jude 3. Jude, verse 3, right before Revelation. Jude 3. A short little 
one chapter book, if you even want to call it that. Jude 3. So that was Paul said that I fought the good fight. I've kept, keep your mind's eye, if you would, on kept. He kept the faith. There was really not much more important uh, other than Christ himself than keeping that faith and keeping the gospel real and true and honest. Jude 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. Same attitude, you see it? That you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. And that's that epigonismi up here in the board. To contend comes from the fierce competition of the athletic field. That's the word's background. Fierce competition of the athletic field. It means to struggle, to fight with all one's strength. And that's a reference to preserving the faith to contend, to fight earnestly for the faith, to preserve it. If we can't preserve the gospel, folks, we've got nothing. If we goof the gospel up or if we divide it somehow or we water it down somehow and we say, well, it's 2015, then we've lost it, folks. We've lost the good fight. We've stopped fighting the good fight for that faith. We've stopped keeping it appropriately. So we have to contend for it. This is a battle, folks. We're contending with the world who wants to pervert it and make it cheap and easy, so to speak. Once for all, from Hapax, it means, refers to the fact that gospel message was given to the church at the beginning. It had not come in installments. Its content is fixed not to be revised for each new era. So you're to struggle to fight for this faith that was given one time. We don't have the authority, in other words, to change the gospel, to change what faith is. So we are to fight, folks, with everything that we've got. And if you are a true believer, you want to fight this fight because you share Christ's heart in this thing. Jude 3 again, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So it's true, we are fighting the same good fight as Paul and Jude and so many others earnest for the gospel truth. The gospel is coming under increasing attacks. It has always been under attack, but with the advent, and I taught a mini-series on this, on the advent of advanced communications technologies, Satan has done a really good job, quote-unquote, at 
attacking it, at watering it down, at confusing the base message of the gospel itself. One of the primary issues that the apostles had to deal was or deal with has resurfaced under the guise of a more gracious salvation. But as we'll see as we continue to dig our heels into Scripture, it's an old-fashioned attack with just a new look. But it's still antinomianism, among other things, up here on the board, just so you know what that long word means, antinomianism, from Baker's Dictionary of Theology. It says, the word comes from the Greek anti, against, and nomos, law, and signifies opposition to law. It refers to the doctrine that the moral law is not binding upon Christians as a rule of life. Well, a converted person, a truly saved person, has Christ's heart. And the law of Christ is what? Love. So to say that you can take grace and overrun people without loving them, is what we would begin pointing back to antinomianism at or for. Just a continuation of that definition from Baker. In a wider sense, it is applied to the views of fanatics who refuse to recognize any law but their own subjective ideas, which they usually claim are from the Holy Spirit. That's the whole point. But they are subjective. The easiest way to become subjective is to ignore Scripture. That's the easiest way to become subjective. And uh, they do this thing, and then they claim that what they're claiming is from the Holy Spirit. It's this second aspect of the definition that has wreaked havoc with the Gospel. Listen, if your idea of the grace given at salvation is minus a personal hatred of the self-life and sin, then your so-called grace isn't His grace at all. Let me say it again. If your idea of the grace that is given at salvation is minus a personal hatred of the self-life and sin, then your so-called grace isn't His grace at all. And since true faith is the channel by which true grace is given through, well, that implies that your faith is awry also. One implies the other. But all of that is a development that we're not ready to tackle just yet. So hold that thought as we get ourselves situated with some more basic facts. And I hope you appreciate that the way that the Spirit's going about this is Scripture on Scripture on Scripture on Scripture. First, faith will produce works. It is the great litmus test for those who proclaim to be saved it's impossible for a believer to not produce works. If a prophet, and I'm talking about good works, I'm talking about fruit of the Spirit, let's say, good works. 
It's the litmus test. It's impossible for a believer not to produce good works. If a professor of faith never produces fruit, they are proven unsaved. Fruit begins in the soul, folks. And if you don't have a, oof, an ongoing re- repentance from sin, a hatred of sin, something's wrong. If you're still able to live a life of sin without remorse, without sorrow of any sort whatsoever, without any conviction that it's flat out wrong and against God, and it's abhorrent to you, then you might not be saved. That's why in the Bible you see these long lists of you know, fornicators, adulterers, uh, uh, haters, insolence, haters of mother and father, you know, disobedient, all these kinds of things. Those are the people, that's a list of things that cannot exist without a hatred towards them in a true believer. That's why those lists exist. So a person that's able to do all those things or even any of those things without a care in the world cannot be saved because they don't have Christ's heart. That's what the scripture says, not Pastor Ed. And that's a very unpopular message nowadays. That gospel reality is not taught very often anymore. You know why? Because most churches, unfortunately, and I don't mind saying it's not our church, but most churches, unfortunately, are more interested in filling seats than actually teaching truth. When Jesus Christ himself said, you know what, you don't want audience with me, shuffle along. You don't want audience with me, you don't want me, I'll go to the next town. That was Jesus Christ's attitude. He did not bend towards people, nor should we. And that is the point so far. Go to John 14, 21. John 14, 21. John 14, 21. Red letters, right? All right. Better listen up then, huh? He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Who is that? That's a saved person. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. You wouldn't keep his commandments and you wouldn't love him if you weren't what? Saved. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, in other words, if they be saved, if anyone loves me, if they be saved, he will keep my word. He will produce good works, in other words. If anyone loves me, the implication is that they're saved, he will keep my word, produce good works, you see, and my Father will love him and we will come to Him and make our abode with Him. Up here on the board, 
from Tereo, he will keep, emphasis on will, he will keep, means to keep, to guard, properly maintain, preserve, figuratively, spiritually guard or watch, keep intact. The future active indicative means they dogmatically will. That's what the indicative means. They dogmatically will. It's not a question of if, like some would propose with a watered-down gospel. Some propose that you can be believers and somehow never produce good fruits. It's just a matter of volition. No, if you have Christ's heart, your greatest desire is to produce good fruit because that was His great desire. You are a new creature in Christ, are you not? What takes you away from fulfilling being totally sanctified all at once? Well, you know, the flesh, your roommate. So we still have to deal with that thing. But the Word of God is dogmatic. It says, He will keep. If you're a believer, you will keep. You will guard my commands, my words. You will produce fruit, in other words. The future active indicative means they dogmatically will. In other words, Jesus said to his own, or said in his own undeniable words that if you are saved, you will keep his word. Doesn't mean you're not going to fail sometimes, but your great desire, your heart, will desire to keep his word. And that's your litmus test. Again, Jesus said in his own undeniable words that if you are saved, you will keep his word. You will guard it. You will share his heart. In even the ancient scriptures as it is revealed up here on the board, Proverbs 15.9, The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves one who pursues righteousness. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Hmm. If you are, that's his heart, by the way. If you are saved, your very nature, as we'll continue to prove later on, will be changed by grace through faith, such that it is impossible for you to not keep his word. Indicative, folks. Again, if you are saved, your very nature will be changed by grace through faith, such that it is impossible for you to not keep Tereo, his word. You will feel the same way about sin as the Lord God does. You can't be saved and still love sin. Does that make sense? Your new nature can't even sin. It's impossible for it to sin. I've taught you that not that long ago. So it's impossible for you, and by the way, you should be identifying with your new nature, not your flesh. This flesh is getting worse and worse each day. It's horrible. That's why Paul says, who's going to deliver me from, who will deliver me from this body of death? Because it's your body, it's your flesh, if you would, that is the carcass. You are to identify with the new nature. Therefore, you will feel the same way about sin 
as the Lord God does. Again, John 14, 23. John 14, 23. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, if they be saved, he will keep my word. He will produce good works. That's tereo. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. And then, as if to speak to Judas directly about unsaved people at such, he says in verse 24, He who does not love me, not saved, does not keep my words, no works. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And that's a reference to Romans 8, 7, if you want to cross-reference that later. In other words, this is, the, this is the flip side. The first example was, if you love me, you're saved, and you're going to keep my words. If you don't love me, you're not saved. And therefore, you won't keep my words. That's the faith of a child right there. It's not complicated. That's how simple Scripture is. Especially when you get the Gospel right. Completely right. Not part right. So you see, there's the danger, folks. It's an insidious little error that many so-called Christians have made. And unfortunately, I fear that many of those so-called Christians remain unsaved in their darkness. And how great is their darkness when they think they are in the light. This is why it's so difficult to get a so-called, and I'm just saying so-called because not everybody who says they're a Christian is a Christian. Amen? Okay, there's a lot of people out there that say, I'm a Christian. I had one person tell me publicly, multiple times, over the course of a couple of months, I am a Christian, but I don't believe that Jesus Christ is the only way. I think there are other ways. I said, how are you using that word in the same sentence? I don't even understand it. His name's in the word. I mean, what are you doing? Just call yourself something else. So there are a lot of people, and that's an extreme example, but there are a lot of people who call themselves Christians but aren't actually saved. So who cares about the name? I mean, the name, if you look back in Acts, when it was first used, it was derogatory. I'm getting to the point now, I don't even want to call myself a Christian. I just want to say I'm saved. I'm a believer. I believe the true gospel. But calling myself a Christian automatically gets me into this, like, perverted group of weirdos. Right? And it's like, oh my goodness, what do people expect on the outside looking in? But nonetheless, it's... When someone's in the dark and they think they're in the light, it's very difficult to get that person to revisit the gospel. Very, very difficult. Because they think they're already saved. And the, 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 I don't want to say it's Sunday morning, but do you mind if I say the crappy thing? Too late's out. The crappy thing about a false gospel is that it has a certain appeal. It has a certain convenience to it. And if you revisit it with them, with the true gospel, the one that actually might save them, it may just upset them. And they don't want that. God has put it in each of us to respond to the true gospel in such a way that conviction is inevitable. God would be unjust otherwise. That's why we call it blasphemy of the Spirit, because the Spirit is going to convict everyone at some point in their life of the gospel truth. However, as most of you will attest, most people don't like to be convicted about their depravity. I just want more stuff. I want to keep the old life, like the rule of the rich ruler that I taught, 
in the, uh, the account, I keep calling it a parable, the rich ruler that came to Jesus came right up to the gate, the gate, capital G, and said, I want eternal life. How do I get it? Blah, 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 blah. But you've got to give up the self-life, my friend, and follow me. You want to do that? Nope. I don't want to give up the self-life. I want to keep the self-life and get eternal life. I want to hold on to, I want to hold hands with two different things. I want one hand in the, under the sovereignty of sin, because that's the self-life, and I want one hand in the sovereignty of Christ, the Lord. Christ says, no way! Paul said, no way! You cannot serve two masters. There's no way. It's impossible. Amen? Is that hard? No, the problem is most people don't want to face their depravity. That would mean they'd have to eventually turn against it and give up the self-life. So a convenient gospel works for them, do you see? Romans 8.5, go there. Speaking of Paul... Speaking of Paul... Romans 8, 5. For those who are according to the flesh, that's a reference to an unsaved individual, they set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, a saved individual, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it cannot, or for it does not subject itself to to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. An unbeliever cannot subject itself, himself, herself, to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. They have an issue. And those who are in the flesh, unsaved, that's the antithesis. What does Paul call out a savior? In Christ, right? But if you're in the flesh, you are the opposite of in Christ, you are unsaved. Therefore, those who are in the flesh, unsaved, cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. You, my friends, he's saying, are saved if, here it is, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Oh, oh. Those who are in the flesh, the unsaved folks, cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. You are saved if, indeed, the Spirit of God dwells in you. We'll get to 2 Corinthians 13.5 in a little bit. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, is not spiritual, let's call it. We'll get to that again as well. He does not belong to him. What does that say? Read that with the faith of a child. Let's read it again. However, you are not in the flesh, but what? In the spirit. You're not unsaved, you're saved. If, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Paul made a habit of telling people in the churches to make sure you have Christ for real. 
Not just a professor, not just going through the, moment, through the motions, for real. And do you think that's strange at all? What am I doing right now? Do you think it's strange for a, a shepherd, a loving shepherd, to stand before a congregation who he never knows for sure are 100% saved and go, can you do me a favor and make sure you're saved? Do you want to make sure that you got the gospel right? Do you want to make sure that you're saved? People get so hung up. Oh, well, Paul here, right here, was talking to a believer crowd only. It's the Romans. It's the church. They're a bunch of believers. So it's all believers. Bull! I'm a shepherd. I'm filled with the Spirit. And I'm telling you, I'm asking you right now, are you saved? That's between you and the Lord. I really do care that much to revisit the gospel and suggest even for a moment, not that I haven't done this myself, not that I don't do it frequently enough, make sure you are saved. Paul has no qualms with that, does he? However, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ is not spiritual, so to speak. He does not belong to Him. And Christ calls those that belong to Him, what? His own. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. They're my sheep. And no one's able to pluck them out. So if you don't belong to Him, then guess what? You're unsaved. Back to Jesus' words. In John 14.23, go back there, John 14.23. Remember the faith of a child, folks. John 14.23. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, In other words, if they be saved, he will keep my word, produce good works, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me, God doesn't make his abode with um, people that are still living and still in sin. Do you understand? These people have to be converted, they have to be changed, and then they receive the indwelling of the Trinity He who does not love me, not saved, does not keep my words, has no works, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So God the Father says these things up here on the board. So we get to this point that the Spirit's been plucking at now for a couple of weeks now. A convenient gospel, little g. Too many professing Christians have never addressed the issue of their depravity. They have simply given mental assent to a cheap gospel and told they are heading for heaven. That's a convenient gospel, isn't it? But we know from Scripture that there is such a thing as a different Jesus, a different gospel, and a different spirit, all little letters. And that people can believe and even tolerate all those things. We know that from Scripture. So we know that a little G gospel, one that doesn't save, let's say, one that doesn't result in salvation, one that's not truth of salvation, they exist. They do. And unfortunately, too many professing Christians have believed it and have never addressed one of the issues that I see 
in Christianity now is there's so many people out there that say they're saved, but heck, they've never addressed their own depravity. Somehow, some way, they, have, they claim they have the heart of Christ, if they even know that much about Scripture and truth. They claim they have the heart of Christ, but somehow their fruit speaks a completely different story. They're living without any remorse, without any conscience whatsoever, in all these lists of sins. And they have, like, no problem with it. And a cheap gospel says, well, don't worry about it. You didn't get sanctified anyway. Sanctification is not really part. It's an option later on if you feel like it. What do you mean if you feel like it? If Christ gives you his heart, guess what you have? You have his heart. If you don't have his heart, then you don't have his heart. He says, if you love me, if you're saved, then you will what? Tereo. Keep. Not maybe. Not maybe kind of. Not hope so. You will. Dogmatically, you will keep my commandments. If you're saved. And if you're not, then you won't. You may look like you're keeping them, but you're only doing it out of self-righteousness. Which isn't divine good fruit, is it? Nope. That's where religion goes wrong. Too many professing Christians have never addressed the issue of their depravity, folks. They have simply given mental assent to a cheap gospel and told they are heading for heaven. This is the great tragedy of all tragedies. Concentrate for a moment. This is a bit of a maturity principle, and I don't mean to be offensive, but you may not get it first time around. But here we go. A convenient gospel, little g, actually does the exact opposite to a person's faith in their salvation. Let me say it again. A convenient gospel actually does the exact opposite to a person's faith in their salvation. Instead of it giving a person a true sense of security in Christ as Lord, they are left having to, quote, deal with sin that hasn't been dealt with, turned from. Because in their gospel, their depravity wasn't part of the equation. Again, a convenient gospel actually does the exact opposite to a person's faith in their salvation. Instead of it giving a person a true sense of security in Christ, they are left having to, quote, deal with sin that hasn't been dealt with or turned from. We call that repentance, which in the end produces ungodly insecurity. What a tragedy to believe you're saved and still live in insecurity. Eventually, these people conclude that God's promises aren't real, and many walk away. They're not real because they don't actually, they're not actually saved. So they never achieve all these things, peace, happiness, contentment, the fulfillment, the desires. They look at God, uh, Paul, and they're like, what is, what is he talking about? I don't have any desire. I, I kind of like my sin. I kind of like living in sin. I kind of like this thing. I don't want to turn away from that. I just want to make sure I don't go to hell because that place is like really fiery and bad. But eventually these people conclude that God's promises aren't real and many walk away. 
That's the battle the Spirit is fighting right now in your own souls, folks. And if you don't see it yet, please dwell on what I just stated this afternoon. Again, the point on the board. A convenient gospel. Too many professing Christians have never addressed the issue of their depravity. They have simply given mental assent to a cheap gospel and told they are heading for heaven. More so, a convenient gospel for a person to say they love Jesus. This is what we just saw in John 14. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. For a person to say they love Jesus, implying that they are saved, but then not keep his word. For example, obey his commandments as a way of life, implying he is your Lord. For a person to say they love Jesus but not keep his word is for that person to challenge the veracity, the truthfulness of Jesus' own words in John 14. You see, there is no obedience implied in easy believism or convenient gospels. You can just take the eternal life as some kind of a, I don't know, what? Just some kind of mental blessing, some kind of a thing that you expect to get, as long as I don't go to hell. But there's no turning away from the self-life. When that's what Jesus did all the time, people would come to, the, come to him. Lord, Lord, didn't I do the X, Y, and Z in your name? Get away from me, I never knew you. You didn't do anything for me. You did it for yourself. You went to church. You got all hoity-toity. You got all the doctrines down packed. You did all these things, but you did it for yourself. You were just magnifying yourself. You just wanted to make another conquest for yourself. Well, that's a convenient gospel, isn't it? Find a gospel that allows you to stay in the flesh and elevate the flesh and still stake a claim to heaven. Jesus said, that's not my heart at all. I I didn't come for the righteous. I came to save who? Sinners. I didn't come to save the righteous people. Boy, what a convenient gospel. Jesus said dogmatically that a person who is saved will obey him, implying that he is their Lord. As we noted at the start of class, Paul fought the good fight, keeping the faith. He was constantly defending the gospel throughout the entire New Testament. DJ and I were talking about this earlier. If you look at the New Testament, it's like essentially a bunch of different defenses. And it's about the gospel. It's not about so-called spirituality, folks. It's about the gospel. People have perverted the New Testament into this so-called... I don't even know what to call it. I'm not going to address it right now. But if you read the... Bible, the New Testament, with the gospel up front, and you understand the context of each letter, you're going to realize very quickly that each letter is really a defense of the gospel in some different way. John had Gnostics. Paul dealt with the Galatians, with legalism, with Judaizers. He dealt with other individuals and Romans that were saying they could be justified by works. James uh, dealt with the same people who said they could be justified by works. James dealt with the other aspect. Look, these are all defenses of one simple truth, the gospel truth. So does it make sense that he's got pastors and I'm not the only one standing behind pulpits right now on this Sunday morning defending the gospel yet again? Of course it makes total sense. 
because if Satan can screw the gospel up, what's left? It's from faith to faith. If he can screw up the gospel, and then a person sits there and thinks they got it right and that they're saved, he's got them. And what was, wasn't that Paul's great fear? I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, that you will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Wasn't that his great fear? Well, that's my great fear. And it should be your great fear. Go to Romans 5.20. So Paul was constantly fighting this fight, folks. He just wanted to hold on to that faith. Jude said the same thing. Contend for it. Fight for it. There's only one. There's not a gospel, you know, a hundred years ago that's different than a gospel now. And you have to look back and say, well, this new gospel that's been floating around, where did it come from? Oh, it's less than a hundred years old. It's been exacerbated by advanced communications technology. Romans 5.20 The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So this is where Paul begins to argue against the tendency of antinomians. Remember, antinomians say, ah, then what the heck, if, the, if God's grace is amplified, then why don't I just sin my butt off, and then I'll bring glory to him. And those are the idiots who say, oh, I am what I am by the grace of God. Woo! That's antinomianism. But if your gospel never included a turning away from the depravity, the, the thing, the nature that loves, then guess what? You might not be saved. Because Jesus Christ, if you had his heart, You'd never stand for that garbage. Not as a way of life. But people are constantly trying to pluck the gospel apart. Romans 6.1, what does Paul respond with? What shall we say then? You've got to love Paul, right? The great logician. What do we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? That's the basis of antinomianism. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Unless you're unsaved, of course. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Unless you're unsaved, of course. Or do you not know, and we'll get to, remember, notitia, the three elements of faith. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, notitia again, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. In other words, it's not I'll just keep going. Knowing Natisha, 
that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Death is no longer master over him. He's not, in other words, there's no sovereignty of sin in view. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider the New King James as, as reckoned, which is a census. This is the census aspect, the second aspect of the three elements of faith. Even so, consider a sense yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign. That implies a lordship, folks, doesn't it? Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting, that's yield, the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. What then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. So Paul was making another defense, this time of the antinomians coming in and trying to infiltrate the church of Rome. And so that was his defense, folks. Up here on the board, a convenient gospel. For a person to say they love Jesus, implying they are saved, but then not keep his word, for example, obey his commandments as a way of life, implying that he is Lord, for that person is for that person to challenge the veracity of Jesus' own words in John 14. There is no obedience implied in easy believism. Let's continue. Verse 16. Do you not know that when you present, that's yield, that's the Greek word fiducia, it's the last aspect of the three elements of faith that we'll highlight in a moment. Do you not know that when you present yield yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that you were slaves of sin, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became what? Slaves. The Greek word is doulos, of righteousness. So what's the saved person? Who's the saved person a slave of? The Lord Jesus Christ. Who's the unsaved person a slave of? The sovereignty of sin and the God of this world. You're one or the other. You're either a slave to righteousness or a slave to unrighteousness. Again, we'll keep going. A convenient gospel. Too many professing professing Christians have another Lord, and it isn't Christ. They use the phrase, my Lord and Savior, but they have no real love for him as seen by their fruit. They willingly and unrepentantly reject his commands. They willingly and unrepentantly reject his commands. Listen, the distinction in the Bible is very clear. It's you will sin because you will be tempted. And the only one that was tempted that never sinned was Jesus Christ. So you will sin. But as Paul says in Romans 7, your desire is to do what's right. You may be overcome for a moment, for a time, in or by a certain sin. 
And in that way, you look like, you behave like even a carnal person, an unbeliever. Because that's what unbelievers do, right? They totally ignore the commands of God. But you will be a changed person. And your new nature, the real you, won't have tolerance for it. Your good conscience will convict you. The Spirit will convict you through that good conscience. And if you have the Scripture like many of you do, He's going to recall that for you. Isn't that, isn't that His ministry? Yeah, He's going to recall that to remember. It's going to be undeniable. And you're going to be like, oh, that's totally wrong. I guess fornication is wrong. I guess sex before marriage is wrong. I guess living with another person that I'm not married to and having sex is wrong. I guess that's wrong. But you see, a person who's not saved doesn't have a problem with those things. They can go waltzing along without any problem. And that person needs to look in the mirror and say, am I even saved? How can I possibly tolerate these things against the Lord? And I'm not talking about failure once in a while. I'm talking about lifestyle. When you have the active uh, voice, present tense often, in the Bible, it means what? I've taught you this. It means a habit. It means a force of habit. So if your force of habit is something on the flip side of God's command, well, then you don't have a force of habit for His commands, do you? And He says, if you love Me, if you're saved, you will keep My commands. So if you don't keep His commands, you may not be saved. The Bible is not shy on that subject. Don't believe me? Read all of 1 John. Read James, especially James 2. Read Paul. Read Jesus Christ. See what he has to say about that thing. He said, those people have no part in the kingdom of heaven. People that can live that way intolerance of the old life. They don't have any part. I didn't say that. Jesus Christ said that. I don't know. Up here on the board. Too many have faith, but it isn't the faith that God gives. Rather, it is human faith and a false gospel. God-given faith is the channel for grace. Without it, there's no fruit-bearing, no salvation even. Again, too many have faith, but it isn't the faith that God gives. Rather, it is human faith and a false gospel. God-given faith is the channel for grace. Without it, there's no fruit-bearing, no salvation. This, my friends, is why we are reloading the gospel in our barrels. I believe we all, myself included, need a good old-fashioned shakedown on whether or not we've had it nailed. Have we drifted? Have we become tolerant, as Paul would say? You bear this beautifully. A different gospel from a different spirit. And you're all sitting here bearing it wonderfully and beautifully. You think Paul didn't deal with this stuff in the early church? Come on. But this is what motivates me, and it should motivate you. This is why we come back, because we don't want to bear it beautifully. Our heart of hearts, let's call it the one that's changed, the new nature, can't stand the possibility that we might actually present a false gospel to an unsuspecting individual. That's despicable to a person with Christ's heart. This is why we're 
doing this thing. We need to get it nailed. Thank God he has found a way to save us despite our ridiculousness and our errant doctrines. Thank God, if that even be the case. And I hope it is. I've had a lot. (laughs) So I'll share, just so you don't think you're the only one on the chopping block. I've had to eat a lot of humble pie this past couple of weeks, folks, truth be told. Given the fact that my own conception of the gospel truth was divided, I have misunderstood more passages of Scripture than I care to shed light on. That's a hard reality for a shepherd, just as an individual. Never mind my love for all of you. But that's the way it goes. I am convinced that that's how he works. That he says, I'll take this group of people and I'll change them bit by bit by bit by bit. And when they look back, they're going to be like, I cannot believe I believed that before, that that was actually being taught from the pulpit before. But God ordained it. God's patient for a reason. If I taught even this message five years ago, it would have been like this. Everybody would have went, this guy's nuts. Gone. Can I get at least one amen? You know it's true, don't you? You know it's true. He had to prepare the soil. This is what he was doing. He was preparing the soil. And as long as we stay humble, we're going to continue to be sanctified. We're going to be more and more useful to the kingdom. That's all we can ask for, right? Last time I checked, except for Jesus Christ, nobody's ever had it nailed 100%. Never. Only Jesus Christ. So this is normal, quote-unquote, for these kinds of circumstances. I get the supreme feeling that my, you know, lack of caring to shed light on how many scriptures that I've been remiss on, I get the supreme feeling that my cares are of no concern to him at all. (laughs) Which I embrace, mind you. I'm glad because I don't really care. I just want to be right. I just want to be right. I don't care how wrong I may have been in the past. I just want to live rightly today. Isn't that Christ's heart? That's all I really have ever wanted. So that means that you all will be visiting all the verses that I have misappropriated in my own soul. We've already seen a couple already this morning. Why? Because if I had them as such, then that means it's likely that you all have as well, given your backgrounds. Let me give you a primary example. Go to 2 Corinthians 13, 5. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. And just so you know, I have literally struggled with this verse for years. And I taught it a certain way for years. But yet, my heart was agitated by it, was upset about something. 
Something didn't seem right. Something seemed forced. Well, let's read it. And you do me, do me a big favor right now. Pretend, pretend you have zero quote-unquote doctrine under your belt whatsoever. Okay? And I want you to read this with me with the faith of a child. And I want you to remember what I said before about shepherds standing behind pulpits saying, are you saved? You need to make sure that you're saved. In the midst of a teaching. Fair statement? Okay. So Paul says to the Corinthians, right? 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourselves. That's an assayer's term. It means, is there anything impure in you? In other words. And God can only give perfect things, remember. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless you what? Unless indeed you fail the test. In other words, unless you fail to see Christ, unless you fail to see His heart in you. In other words, do you really, are you really against your own depravity? Are you really in a state of hatred towards sin in general? Are you repentant? What do you see? He's asking these people, are you even saved? Make sure that you're saved. How many times have I brought that scripture up as a form of sanctification? Test yourselves to see if you are what? In the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless, guess what? Indeed, you fail the test. Paul's saying plainly, hey, listen, my friends, you better make sure that you're saved. You better make sure that you pass the test. For years, I thought, even taught, that this verse was speaking about a believer's so-called spirituality. I'm going to squash that with a single statement that I have learned since is absolutely true and part of the gospel proper. He who is spiritual. If you are, if you are saved, then you are spiritual. And we'll get to 1 Corinthians 2.15 in a moment. If you are saved, then you are spiritual. You are a spiritual man. You have a new nature. You are spiritual. Don't ever let anybody tell you that somehow you're not spiritual. Not anymore. If you are saved, then you are spiritual. 1 Corinthians 2.15 There's no such thing as a true believer who somehow isn't spiritual. For example, lacks the Spirit's personal ministry. Sinning does grieve the Spirit. That's Ephesians 4.30. But we are no less spiritual as new creatures in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 You notice an awful lot of Scripture, don't you? That's how you get to the root of the issue, folks. Go to 1 Corinthians 2.14. And read it with the faith of a child. With me. And throw out your preconceptions about being spiritual or so-called carnal Christians. That's, there's no such thing. You can behave like a carnal person, but you, my friend, are not carnal. You are a new creature. How could you possibly be carnal? 
Your great desire, as Paul says, abundantly in the New Testament, is to do what's right, even though you're dragging around that old self that likes to do things that are wrong. But you are a new creature. If we get raptured right now, where's the body go? Well, we get trans. All right, stop, stop, stop. If you were to die today, if you were to die today, what happens to your body? Why doesn't the body go up to heaven? Because it hasn't been changed yet. Do you understand? The body is death. Sin still reigns in the flesh. But not in you. Those are the vestiges, if you would, of sin. Anyways, if you are saved, then you are spiritual. 1 Corinthians 2.14 But a natural man, who's a natural man? An unsaved person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are what? Spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual, saved, appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord? That he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. That's the saved. So simply put, you have a distinction. A natural man and a spiritual man. A natural man is an unsaved person. A spiritual man is a saved person. Is that difficult? Nope. Not if you read it with the faith of a child, it isn't. Unless you think that um, somehow the grace failed you, that somehow he didn't complete that work somehow, when he made you new, when he gave you the indwelling of the Spirit, that somehow it was going to fail you, that you were no longer going to be a spiritual individual. The only reason I'm even mentioning that is because I know many of your backgrounds. And for some of you, you need to realize something right now. The little world that you existed in, like I told DJ, I don't have a golf ball up here, but I had a golf ball in my office. I said, the little world that you existed in with the perverted gospel, with this idea of spirituality versus carnality, this kind of a thing, was the size of a golf ball. The rest of human history, when it came to the gospel proper, is the room. But when you're just a molecule inside of a golf ball, your world is completely enveloped in this thing. What I'm really saying is a lot of the stuff that even myself was convinced of is new theology. You go to folks like Charles Spurgeon, B.B. Warfield, all the so-called giants that lived centuries ago, they would be teaching the same thing I'm teaching right now. But, as I said earlier, in God's perfect timing and with His perfect sovereignty and His perfect will, He's taken people who had certain things wrong and He slowly delivered them out of bondage into freedom. You shouldn't be confused, folks, about things like, well, heck, am I or am I not spiritual right now? Is there some kind of protocol I can do to ensure that I'm like, you know, spiritual? That's a lie. You are spiritual if you're saved. 
up here on the board. If you are saved, then you are spiritual. 1 Corinthians 2.15 There's no such thing as a true believer who somehow isn't spiritual, lacks the Spirit's personal ministry. Sinning grieves the Spirit, Ephesians 4.30, but we are no less spiritual as new creatures in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Go there. Go 2 Corinthians 5.17. Sounds an awful lot like a works program after salvation that you would have to do something to be spiritual to me. That's what it sounds like to me. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that would be saved, he is a new creature. That's you if you're saved. You're a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God. All these things. And guess what? God doesn't know how to fail at giving. If he says he's going to make you spiritual, then guess what? You're spiritual. If he says he's going to change you, if he says he's going to make you a new creature that's pure in his sight, that's been made righteous, then guess what? You are. And that's your natural tendency now. It's for the things of Christ. It's just that doggone flesh that just loves to take us away. Fine. We fail. We look like carnal people when we sin. But that does not make you, the new creature, a, quote, carnal believer. No such thing. Let's go back to the chapter we visited on Thursday that speaks wholly about faith. Go to Hebrews 11.1. We're still perusing the ground floor, by the way. He's teasing us with some uh, more developed concepts along the way, but for the most part, he's still developing the ground floor because, think about it, faith Grace, salvation, even spirituality, sanctification, the gospel, these are all ground floor levels. If your so-called doctrines build on something that's actually even partially errant, you have a problem. And if you're like me, part of the skyscraper falls down. (laughs) That part of the gospel that you had wrong, everything above it just went... And that's okay. That's okay. Look, if you're not teachable, you're not anything. The day I look in the mirror and I realize that I'm unteachable is the day I walk away. I wouldn't curse you with that thing. And I don't want you to curse yourselves with it. Hebrews 11.1 now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And I've given you some cross-references up here on the board that I alluded to as we were reading Romans 6 together. The three elements of faith. This is from Strong. You know Strong. Most of you know Strong, but maybe not Burkhoff. But most systematic theologies agree. Knowledge, noticia, the intellectual element, Romans 6. 3, 6, and 9, we saw it. I called them out as we went through them. Ascent from a census, the emotional element. That would be um, Romans 6, 11. That was that reckoning, if you would. Trust, fiducia, the, vol- the volitional, voluntary element. That was what it means to yield 
is a trust issue. So we do see the elements of faith in his discourse in Romans 6. But we're in Hebrews 11, so let's press on. Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. And then we did this, this good work. We're not going to do it this morning. We did this good work on Thursday evening of noting, by faith, Abraham, Sarah, Enoch, all these people, by faith. Right? What did we see? By faith, and then a, a list of works. So I guess faith produces works. That's the so-called hall of fame of faith. And what did we know? By faith, people did stuff. Huh. Verse 6. And without his faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Without his faith. In other words, you could do the same things, technically, that some of these folks did, and still not have his faith. You have to have his faith. You have to do his good works. There are many without faith that he will turn away. For example, the Pharisees. Isn't that what he said? You know, the Phar- if you were to walk up, if you were to be transported in a time capsule right now back to the days of the Pharisees and looked at one of them in the face and said, you know what, you're without faith. They'd probably have you strung up. They would definitely run you out of the synagogue. They would run you out of town. They would try to belittle you. They would try to discredit you. They would try to ruin your life. Boy, that sounds like the love of Christ. I, I mean, it's ridiculousness. They did it to Christ, their Messiah, the one they should have recognized as a person, but didn't. So up here on the board, John 5.38 in the Amplified. You do not have his word, scripture abiding in you, actually living in your hearts and minds. That's the difference between mental assent and heart issues. You do not have his word abiding in you, actually living in your hearts and minds. Think of Hebrews 4.12, the word is alive and powerful. Because you do not believe in him whom he has sent. Oh, you mean we actually have to believe in a person? Yeah, yeah. You search and keep on searching and examining the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And yet it is those very scriptures that testify about me as a person. And you still are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. The intellectual crowd then is the same type of intellectual now. Only now they have even more scripture to mangle and bring others into bondage by. DJ and I were talking about this stuff for about two hours last night here at the church, having a heart-to-heart on all of this stuff. And the great error that, as we see it is just this, that complexity, there's complexity where there should be simplicity. The only reason certain scriptures have never made sense to you is because you probably had some portion of the gospel wrong. Because if you get the gospel right and you keep that at the forefront as you read the Bible with the faith of a child, it's obvious what he's, what's being said. Quite obvious. So the way we see it, and I'm just sharing, we see complexity where there should be simplicity. And it all begins with the simplicity of the gospel. It is a simple thing, really. Something Jesus himself expounded upon plainly and without apology or reservation 
He said it this way, remember? John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they what? They follow me. They leave the old life behind. That was one of his prerequisites, a repentance proper. They leave the old life behind. A person who still loves the old life is not following Jesus. That's the whole point. But a cheap gospel tells you you don't have to turn away from that. You can keep that, and you can take this. And Christ himself said, no way, no way do I accept that. Paul fought vehemently. No way. You cannot, be a, you cannot have two masters. But yet that's what a cheap gospel, quote, allows. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. The principle is this. Salvation is personal. Jesus Christ made salvation a personal issue, not a doctrinal one. Only faith from God, not human faith and doctrines, can save. It is a gift given when a person accepts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, nothing less. Okay. So Hebrews 11 gave us proof beyond a shadow of a doubt of this. Faith will produce works. It will. The Spirit also took caution with us so that we didn't begin mincing words. He threw this in there as well, because some people get weird. They say, well, what's he teaching? Is he teaching, like, works now? May it never be. That's not what I'm teaching at all. I'm defending the gospel. Paul said in Romans 3.28, works are not the basis of receiving faith. I know that. You know that. Just read Ephesians 2.8 and 9. That can't be what the Spirit's been saying from the pulpit. James stated that saving faith will produce works. James 2.17. These are two different arguments that ought never be mashed together. They are harmonious with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul was simply stating that Jesus said, or what Jesus said as part of his gospel presentation. Go to Luke 5.30. Luke 5.30. See, there's no shortage of Scripture, folks. There's no necessary mental gymnastics. There's no higher level of understanding that only people with degree designations after their name can somehow attain. Luke 5.30. That's all garbage, folks. That's the same garbage that the Pharisees peddled. Luke 5.30. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick... I have not come to call the, and you can put the word self right in front of that. I have not come to call the self-righteous, but sinners to what? Repentance. You know why? Because a self-righteous person never repents. A self-righteous person is like the ruler. I've kept the whole law. Just tell me what I need to do. I'm so good. Let me, let me just say this. Let me just say this. I'm so awesome that I have actually managed to do the thing that the scripture says I couldn't do, right? I'm so awesome. You just tell me my awesomeness, what I need to do so I can have eternal life. And Jesus cuts right to the chase, says, then give up the self-life. 
That's the test you need to pass, my friend, because Jesus saw his heart. Jesus was God, after all. Saw the heart and said, all right, give up the self-life. You see, a self-righteous person will never repent. A self-righteous person is looking for a cheap gospel, a convenient gospel, because to them it's just another conquest. I want heaven. What do I need to do? Tell me what I need to do. And Christ says, follow me. And then the Pharisees are saying, what the heck, man? We're the intellectual, we're the intellectual, we're the upper crust here. What are you doing with sinners? Because I have nothing to do with you. You don't want anything to do with me. You don't want to give up the self-life. You want to keep the self-life and then stake a claim to me, or at least salvation. And Jesus said right there, Luke 5.32, I have not come to call the self-righteous but sinners to repentance. And I honestly believe my voice just failed, and I'm out of time, unless you guys have some more vigor. People are like, ha, ha. Yeah, I got bigger. I think the right thing to do is, yeah. Right? I'll, I guess I'll end here. This is perfect timing anyways, even though I have more notes. But it's not about me. It's about getting it right. Right? I honestly believe that Luke 5.32 is one of the greatest verses a person can commit to memory. I'm almost tempted to put it right on the front page of the website. Honest to goodness. He said, look, I have not come to call the the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Who repents? A self-righteous person or a sinner? Who repents? A sinner. So if you don't realize that you're a sinner and you're self-righteous and you just want to hold on to the self-life and then just take all the goodie bags over here, are you ever going to repent? No. And All right, I'll leave you with this. Jesus was answering the self-righteous and essentially responded by saying, I have nothing for you as you are interested in turning from your sin. That's it. <laughs> so how can you possibly say the gospel doesn't require or imply repentance? when Jesus Christ implied the same thing. The very first word, don't believe me? Read uh, Matthew 4 tonight. Right after he gets tempted in the wilderness by Satan himself, he starts what we would normally call his public ministry. Look at the very first word. The very first word. You don't believe me? All right, do I have it? Hold on. Give me a second. Give me a second. I've got to flip through my notes here. Don't believe me? You don't believe me? Go to Matthew 4, 4.17. Then i got to end. This is why I didn't want to give up. He's told me I could not give up. See that? I'm fighting. I'm fighting. Right? Doesn't get any more important than the gospel. Does it? No, it doesn't. I'm going to show you something magnificent in the Word of God. Are you ready for this? Well, as long as I can get there. Jeez, how many notes did I have? All right. Don't look at that point on the board. And don't put it up. Okay. Matthew 4.17, after his testing in the wilderness, he starts his public ministry. From that time, as became his habit, Jesus began to preach and say, what's the very first word? Repent. 
What? The very first word out of the Lord and Savior's mouth in his personal ministry, repent. What? Repent for the kingdom of heaven. You want to see even better? This is how magnificent this is. Preach and say, both are in the present active, meaning Jesus always and habitually preached repent. It wasn't one time. He habitually preached repent. Repentance is certainly part of the gospel message that we ought to preach and say. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. I would like to dedicate the closing moments of today's message to those who are without Christ and therefore are without hope. John 3.16 does state, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you are indeed without Christ at this moment, know this, have faith in this, and embrace this as solemn truth. Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. So if you do know that you're a sinner and you truly repent and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then accept God's gift now. That is Christ himself, the indescribable gift, and be saved. If you just believe for the very first time, I'd like to welcome you to God's family. Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for giving us your grace and love. We love because you first loved us. We wouldn't know how otherwise. We wouldn't be able. We wouldn't even be equipped had it not been for your grace reaching out to us first across that great divide, plucking us from the sovereignty of sin and making us your children Your mercy is overwhelming and your truth is absolute. We pray that in spite of the presence of our flesh that we remain encouraged by your grace and in that way through the outworking of your grace in each of us that we encourage one another. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name that we do pray by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Thank you.